Mark, how are you? Good to see you. Some of you remember Mark Padgett from a number of years back. You should have, Alex, but you were just, do you remember Mark? No, these kids. I grew up. Okay, uh, yes, because of the absent families, we were just, no Sunday school, we're staying here for the little kids. Okay. All right, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 25, we will be considering Acts 25, verses 13 through 21 this morning. Let's pray. Father, I beg for your, your presence the sense of it, the power of it upon me and in our midst and upon all of us. As your word goes forth, as your gospel goes forth, we are, we are desperately in need of you, Holy Spirit, to overcome distraction, to overcome fleeting thoughts that interrupt the word of God. Do it this morning. Oh, it is our desire for those of us who are in Christ to glory, Lord Jesus, in you all the more in what we see. We're in much need of strength. We're in much need of joy and hope in the midst of such a broken evil-ridden, tragic world. So do it, Lord. Do it to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. You know, those of us who are Christians, we all have unbelievers in our lives. And those unbelievers, whether family members, friends, and co-workers, when they, they know that we are Christians, they should be thinking three things. And, and one of those, at least three things, and one of those main things they should be thinking about us when they find out, oh, they're a Christian, is this. That person actually believes that a human being named Jesus from Nazareth, who was killed, was actually, historically, bodily, raised from the dead to not just mortal life again, but to human immortality forever. If they do not know that that is a central conviction of our lives as Christians, then we may have failed to share the actual gospel. It's one option. Here's the other. Oh no, we're clear. We have shared it. And according to 2 Corinthians, tragically, a natural blindness lay over their minds, lay over their, their hearts, and somehow they just have filtered that out. Now there's a third 
or it's really a derivative of the second, and it's our main focus this morning. And that is that those persons, what they have done is that they have pulled that Jesus was raised from the dead. They, they have pulled that kind of religious talk out of the category of history and, and reason, and they placed it over into this category they call religious belief. It's unaffected to them. That's how they rationalize that you, a very decent, good person, neighbor, family member, can believe such an absurd thing. That Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. So this morning here in our passage, the, the new governor now of Judea replacing Felix is, is Festus. And he's only been around Paul for a very short time, but he already with a few hearings, one in Jerusalem, talking to Paul's accusers, the leadership, and the hearing there in Caesarea, he already knows the main issue that is in contention. This is what he says to King Agrippa when he gets to Caesarea. Verse 19. The Jews had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. He knew, at least surfacely, their squabble is really about. Let's go back to the beginning here of a passage. Start with verse 13 to set the context. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. So here's Agrippa and Bernice. There's a new governor. They go there to pay their respects to him. They're over and ruling in the same people, the Jews in Judea. Now, Agrippa. First of all, everyone who knows the Christmas story has heard of King Herod the Great, who is technically Jewish and with Rome's sanction and okay. They love people groups that they subjugate to have their own rulers the best they can. And Herod took that mantle proudly. King Herod, the one who was so threatened by the prophecies of a Messiah, he's the one that had all those baby boys murdered in Bethlehem. All right. This Agrippa now, who shows up, King Agrippa II, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. This Agrippa here that we see in the passage, his grand-uncle was the Herod that murdered John the Baptist. This King Herod, Agrippa II, is the son. His dad was Agrippa I, who murdered the apostle James back in Acts chapter 12. The Bernice that is with him is his sister, one year younger, but more than a sister. They're lovers. This is an incestuous relationship. Rome even had problems with this, and they tried to kind of get it Undone, And Rome also, in its ignorance, thought, here's King Herod, you know, the Jew, the king of the Jews, and keeping them in line. He knows a lot about the Jewish 
religion. King Herod was ultimately over the temple in Jerusalem. He had the power and the authority to kick out high priest. Replace them with another of his choice. All right. So now, Apostle Paul, he's two years now. He's been in jail in Caesarea. He's appealed to Caesar. So now he's waiting for his ticket, his voyage to get to Rome. And that means Governor Festus has to have some kind of indictment against him to send with him, to write it up. You can't just say, here's Paul. He's going to have a trial before you, Nero, the Caesar. What are the charges? And he can't figure out what the charges would be. Agrippa shows up in town. He has an idea. He's supposed to know a lot about this Jewishness and Jewish religion. Maybe he can be of help. So let's read our passage. Start with verse 13 again. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest... And the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here in Caesarea... I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these matters, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul, remember who had a Roman citizenship, thus this right, when Paul had appealed to the Supreme Court to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Now, don't let Festus' words fly by. Because Festus is very much alive today. We run into his kind all the time. He represents the worldly, darkened view of the resurrection. The worldly view of what you do with Paul's words of asserting that the dead Jesus is very much alive. It's just stunning how these words just seem to flow off his lips as inconsequential, certainly in comparison with Roman law and what's he going to do. They had certain points of dispute with Paul, 
about their own religion. Paul's a Jew, they're Jews. And about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Help me out here. It just flies by. It's as if Festus said, look, I thought they're going to bring serious charges, which he did, like murder or, or, or with proof and proof of an insurrection. But he says to, to Agrippa, no, their main accusation had to do with religious ideas and about a certain Jesus, this man who was dead, but Paul was proclaiming that he is very much alive. He lives and he dies and he perishes in hell. There is a very dangerous approach, which is modeled by Festus. There's a very dangerous approach to Christianity that is out there today. And it's represented by many nice, good, decent people. I'm going to use one particular person because most of you know who he is and you actually know him because you've heard him and listened to him as, as I have and one of those very good, decent people is named Dennis Prager. He represents this view of approach to what Christianity is about. It goes something like this. Religion, that is good religion, if it's practiced well, if it's used well, produces better People. And that's the goal of religion. Religion, its whole goal is in order to produce better people down here. Religion is ultimately very much man-centered. And therefore, as long as religions make people good, because there's a way to do religion that makes people very bad... That's bad religion. But as long as religions make people good, it doesn't really matter which avenue they use, whether it is Judaism or Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or transcendental meditation. If it makes them good, it's reached its goal, and therefore that is a good religion. Because the religion, the distinguishing marks are, oh, they have different religious beliefs. Theologies. I, Dennis, don't get into that. What I care about is the values of how you function and live in this world. Are there good values that it's producing in the person's lives? Values are really important. I, Dennis, don't get into theology. By the way, values are rational. Theologies or beliefs are in the irrational realm. They're not in the rational realm. That's how someone whom I have highly respected and still do for over 30 years. That's how he could be like Festus. Festus, I was experiencing some serious crime, but instead it's just some religious squabble. About theology, you know, about a dead man whom Paul proclaimed as 
been raised from the dead. So Dennis Prager would say, I'm really happy as an American that it is mainly a Christian nation that there are millions of Christians out there who believe in the resurrection of Jesus because of the good value, particularly American Christianity, as opposed to historic European Christianity, the, the good people that it produces. That's great. Why aren't you? Oh, no, 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 because I'm a Jew. I'm born a Jew. I'm raised a Jew, and I want to stay a Jew. And our theology doesn't allow for understanding the promised Messiah to actually be Yahweh, the God who created everything. Who became a human being. So no, no, no. That's not our belief system. We don't believe that. And, but besides, here's the main thing. Oh, such good values are produced by American evangelical Christianity. And even conservative Catholics. And religious conservative and or orthodox Jews. It's the values that we all have in common. And that's what I love. And that's where reason is. When it comes to theology, it's a different theology, but that's in a whole different category anyway. Called religious belief. Religious faith claims. That's how a very decent person who's rational and very bright goes through life without Christ, without salvation that is found in Jesus only. You can hear Dennis Prager's approach to Christianity, at least I do, through Festus's words. They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. In other words, that topic of the resurrection of Jesus is out of the realm of the rational. It was just the Jews' opinion over against Paul's opinion. It's one religion and their theology over against another religion. And their theology. And that is the world's mindset today. When it comes to Easter which is coming up. Celebrating the resurrection of Christ. You can believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. Don't force that stuff on me. After all religion is a matter of private opinion. It's not about reason. And verifiable truth. And so, yes, I, Dennis Prager, I believe in God. I have my leaps of faith. I believe in Genesis that God created. I believe in Moses. I believe, I believe, that's why, in the, it's irrational, but, but I believe in the exodus out of slavery. I believe that God gave the Ten Commandments. And we all know that humanity, well, we don't all know, but y'all should know, and he's right about that, that humanity is not basically good. God is radically man-centered, and he knows we're not perfect. And that's why his moral law, you can summarize it in the Ten Commandments, 
is so important for the world. And if you do your best, if you fight against your nature, and religion's very helpful here, but many people do it without religion. But if you fight against your nature and you, and you do good and in your good works and your good life and your good deeds far outweigh your sinful ones and, and, and bad deeds, then your afterlife will go very well for you. You see, we all have to fight our nature. And if you do it well enough, you will earn a good afterlife. That is my religion. Ethical Monotheism. Is that clear? You who know Dennis, did I represent him right? Okay. All right. Let's be very clear then. If Dennis Prager is right, then Christianity is wrong. In fact, Christianity stands or falls upon the actual, historical, in time and space, resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The message of Christianity, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ states as an historical fact with eyewitnesses that Jesus from Nazareth was in fact dead and raised from the dead. And because of that, his bloody death on the cross paid the penalty for our sins. It paid the just price for our sins. And that's a price that cannot be paid by all the good deeds that Dennis Prager does. Or that Joe LeMay does. Or that anyone does. In fact, the New Testament is clear. Quote, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, Christianity, is in vain. And in church in Corinth, your faith, what you believe, is in vain. We Not only that, we, I, Paul, and the other apostles, we who proclaim to be eyewitnesses of this, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. We're liars. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. If that first century Jew, itinerant preacher from Nazareth, who was tortured on a Roman cross, 
to death with the spear then going through to make sure the heart's not pumping anymore. Taken down, who within the next hour grew from body temperature to cold. If that one who was prepared for burial and then placed in that little cave in the rock whose body became like that wood right here, hard as rigor mortis set in. If that person in that body three days later did not come back to life, meaning if he in that body was not miraculously made alive and transformed into immortal human life, never to die again, then Christianity is the biggest lie in the history of the world, bar none. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. So let's take his words seriously and weigh them. For I delivered to you as a preacher, as a missionary. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. That Christ, the Messiah, referring to Jesus, He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Meaning the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures foretold this and it actually happened to Jesus and that he was entombed or buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures which foretold his resurrection. Not only that, and that he, Jesus, after his death, after being raised, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. If you want, go to the Holy Land, take a cruise. Most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. But most are still alive. 20 years later, when he writes. Then, Jesus, the resurrected from the dead one, appeared to James. And that's Jesus' little brother. And then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born... He appeared also to me, Paul. The resurrection is not a matter of private opinion. It is a declared fact of history that confronts every single human being. As Paul was preaching a few years earlier in Athens, Greece, he said this, 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. That's Christianity. This is not about Jesus being raised from the dead in my heart so that I feel more happy and have belief. And oh, if you would just believe in Jesus, He'll be resurrected in your heart also. That is not what Christianity teaches. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a bald-faced lie. Or, it is an historical fact that confronts each and every person with the reality that we will all die and all stand before the resurrected man, the Lord Jesus. And there he will either be our Savior from judgment or he will be our judge. And pure justice will be done. Apostle Paul and the other apostles, what they were doing is they were presenting the gospel as eyewitnesses. They were presenting their historical eyewitness experience in testimony that Jesus was actually, really, truly, Raised from human mortality to human immortality. And we have talked with him and touched him and seen him and ate with him. That's what they're proclaiming. Even Festus picks up on this because the way he, he says it to Agrippa and he, and Paul, asserted, not just said, very strong Greek word. He was asserting Jesus, the dead man, to be alive. It wasn't speculation. It wasn't good religious contemplations and thoughts and maybe a better way to live your life that Paul was about. Because that's not the gospel. He was testifying as an eyewitness that this Jesus, this popular preacher, killed under Pontius Pilate, was raised from the dead. And he appeared and stood before me on numerous occasions and talked to me. And I talked to him. That's what he is proclaiming. Now what do you do with it? Well, maybe Paul got a hold of some bad mushrooms on the road to Damascus and he went into some LSD, mushroom hallucination. 
right? But, but you know, historically, what do you do when he came off and came down from that? Because that experience turned public enemy number one against Christianity, who was responsible for the deaths of numerous Christians because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus, who's responsible for who knows how many jail time, imprisonment, and beatings of many other Jewish Christians because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. This guy hated that message so much it offended everything he was about religiously. How do you explain that from that very road to Damascus, the rest of his life, the next 30 years, were utterly turned around, going the opposite way, walking with and proclaiming this very resurrection of Jesus? How do you explain that this Pharisee of Pharisees, and if you don't understand first century Phariseeism, then you might not grasp this. How is it that that man would eat bacon if he's hanging out just with Gentiles on the mission field? That is massive. How do you explain it? Not only that, what about the changed lives of the other 12, including Matthias, who were all with Jesus for a number of years, all the way up to his brutal death, and then were just didn't know what to do. They're in utter disillusionment. They are hiding out in Jerusalem. They are depressed and they're fearful of their lives. How do you, how do you explain their utter transformation for the rest of their lives unto their death? They had nothing to gain from telling a massive lie. Oh, he's raised from the dead. Hide the body so they don't find it. It makes no sense. But instead, they were willing to suffer for that fact. We've seen him over a period of almost six weeks again and again. And he talked and taught and we touched him and we ate food. With him. They were beaten. They were jailed. In the end, most of them were killed, maintaining their testimony that they ate with and talked with and touched Jesus from Nazareth after he was crucified and entombed. And the tomb was empty. Oh, how the leadership of the Jews, once a little bit over a month later, after his crucifixion, and they start to hear this preaching reverberating through the temple grounds in Jerusalem, and we got to do something, which they tried to do, and they even grabbed the apostles. and They would have loved, just what are you talking about? Let's go out to the tomb, and there's the body. But it wasn't there. Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy. He was the lamb. Of course, he's not an animal. It's all a picture. The whole sacrificial system was a picture. 
He's the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who takes away the sin of the world. Ultimately, that's what the Passover in Egypt was about and put into blood on your doorpost so that God's wrath passes over you. He's the Paschal Lamb. He's the substitute slaughtered once a year on behalf of all the people on the Day of Atonement. And on and on. And one of his close earthly friends named John, the son of Zebedee, after decades after the resurrection in ministry, he finally wrote his narrative. He finally put all this together. Literally, look, the guy whom for a number of years they all lived together traveling. You got to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and Jesus, John, get over there and use that tree. I got this one. It's not Use the same tree. You can laugh because Jesus did. This is the man that he referred to when he wrote these words decades later. And he wants us to think about the beginning of the Bible, Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, my friend Jesus, very much a human being, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became human and lived among us. And we, oh I, John, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God because He is Spirit. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made God known. So yes, Festus he didn't understand why the Jews made such a big stink about it. Why they wanted Paul dead. He, he, he didn't get that. Why is this such a big deal? Come on, guys. It's religion, this difference. But from Festus's shallow view, he did grasp. Okay, there's a, there, whatever. Why are they taking it so seriously? There's a big chasm between Paul and the Jewish leadership. King Agrippa, they had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And he got that right. 
That's correct. The difference between Paul and the Jewish leadership was concerning a certain man who was killed. But that wasn't their difference. There was no difference between the Jewish leadership and Paul on whether Jesus of Nazareth, that popular first century preacher, no difference on whether he was killed 26 years earlier under Pontius Pilate. No, no. But the difference was that Paul and many others asserted he rose from the dead and appeared to us. We are eyewitnesses of it, and he is alive forevermore and is returning. The difference is that Paul proclaimed that when any Jew or any Gentile back then in the first century, or today, when any Jew or any non-Jew stands before God one day, either they will bear the weight of their own sin and guiltiness at the judgment. That's what he preached. Or because in the hearing of that gospel, they were changed. A love for Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, who died for my sins and was raised from the dead. I know that. I believe that by the Holy Spirit of God. Because of that love for Him, those persons will stand there and they will hear the definitive words. You have been justified. You've been acquitted by the death of my son. And Jesus will step forward and he'll say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, never let any of us here get tired of this central truth of all history, of all reality, of the gospel of Christianity. May it be ever so more as every one of us since yesterday has drawn closer to death. Oh, May it be that powerful, glorious encouragement. The surety that all your promises for us in him. All of your promises, Jesus. From Genesis, throughout your ministry recorded in the Gospels and through the pen of Paul and the others. Our yes and amen. We love you. Our glorious. Risen. 
ascended king. Oh, we thank you for such mercy. We thank you for those words that you said, go, tell them I'm raised. And they're going to see you and you're going to ascend to your father. And then you said, their father. Thank you, Lord, to the glory of your